yell. So, um, looking around the room, it's, it's always good and known for, for years who've had impact and influence on your life. Um, I was thinking about uh, years ago, it was 1991, I, I was getting ready to go and interview for a job in Athens at the University of Georgia uh, to be the director of the Wesley Foundation there. And, and I, I had gotten a couple of pretty good uh, letters of reference from people uh, that you would probably recognize from here in, in Cobb County, uh, Otis Brumby and uh, Buddy Darden had, had written me letters. And so I felt pretty good about that. But kind of as, you know, the, the Hail Mary last minute uh, attempt, I, I, I called Jim Cagle. And I said, you know, Jim, you, you have some influence in Athens at UGA. And, you know, if you still have any influence, anything you could do, you know, I'm going for this interview, anything you could do would be appreciated. And, and that was all that was said. You know, he didn't say, sure, I'll do it. Or he didn't call me back later and say, hey, I talked to this person or that person. He just, we just kind of left it there, just kind of left it hanging. And, and so I, I go for the interview and uh, Melissa is with me and we go in and we sit down and it, it's really kind of like sitting uh, before the Sanhedrin. There's like 12 people and they're interviewing us and, and you know, they're kind of looking over their glasses while they read stuff on a paper and, and then references. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, Otis, good, good. And um, he says, uh, yeah, um, we got a letter from Vince Dooley, and Ray Goff called us. And uh, they both said that you were the right man for the job. And uh, so we left the interview, and I looked at my wife, and I, and I said, you can just start packing um, because we will get this job. If Vince Dooley says we should have this job, trust me, we will have this job. And, and uh, the, you know, the, the curious thing about that is that to this day, I've never met either of them. <laughs> they vouched for me. They helped me get the job, but I, I've never met them. Now, I told the story later to Jim, and I couldn't remember when I, when I told Jim the story. I said, I can't remember... One of them wrote me a letter, and the other one called. I don't remember which was which. And, and Jim said, well, I'm pretty sure Vince wrote the letter because I'm pretty sure Ray doesn't know how to write. And <laughs> I, I, that's a quote from Jim. So um, I, I think that Johnny Chris is incredibly funny. The, the guy in the videos, you know, that does all the, the Christian funny, funny stuff. Uh, most of the time I, I realize that, he, that he's... He's, I'm one of the people he's making fun of, um, but I do think he's funny. I think he's incredible, fun, incredibly funny. But I want, I want to say to, to you, especially you Stonebridge people, um, the funniest thing that's ever been said by somebody in his family uh, did not come from him. It came from his dad. His dad said to me, I, I don't think, David Eldridge has what it takes to plant a church. And that's the funniest thing that's ever been said in the Chris family. Uh, nobody's ever been more wrong than he was that day. So, David, uh, you're as good as they come. And uh, it's an honor to be here, to be in your church, uh, stand here. So, uh, <laughs> when uh, Jeremy talked to me, he said, thrive. And then I went to Catalyst right after that, and the, the topic for Catalyst was fully alive. 
And so all weekend I've been thinking about fully alive for tonight. And so thankfully, thriving and being fully alive are, are very similar. Um, because that's kind of where I've been focused is, you know, fully alive. And I, I don't know anybody who says I don't want to be fully alive. Uh, I, I just kind of want to be sort of alive, you know, kind of alive, maybe just a little bit alive. Most people want to be fully alive. And in the same way with thriving, nobody says on purpose, ah, you know, I don't really want to thrive. I just want to struggle. I, I, you know, if I could just struggle, that would be good. Uh, just let me struggle. I don't want to thrive. Um, but the problem is, that even though in our, in our minds and, and even in our hearts, we have this desire to thrive or, or to be fully alive, uh, the majority of us struggle, at least at times. And I would say that it's been my experience that most Christians live life at a level lower than God has offered. Now, Jesus said, John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Another translation would be, and that you might have it at its absolute highest level. And how many of us would say we're living life at its highest level? And yet I, I, I fully believe that that's God's intention. Uh, not necessarily uh, what we think of when we think of abundant but what he thinks of when he thinks of abundant. Uh, my wife and I had a chance this, uh, this spring to go to Florence, Italy. And uh, if you're in Florence, Italy, you have to go and see the David, not, not David Eldridge. Um, <clears throat> King David, there's a statue of King David. It looks a lot like David Eldridge. They have similar, <laughs> similar body features. Um, they dress alike. <laughs> Um, but so we got to see this picture of David, and, and you know, when it's over, my wife says, do you want me to take your picture standing in front of the David? And I say, no, I don't want my picture made in front of a naked man statue. I just That's not on my you know, list of like, things that I want. Um, but the interesting story about the David, and, and this, is, this was pretty much true of all of Michelangelo's uh, masterpieces is that he he said that the way he did a sculpture is that he had this block of granite or marble or whatever it was and, and that he would look at it and he would see in that block of marble he would see David and then he would just knock off everything that wasn't David until David was left and that's really a picture of what God wants to do uh, in us for us to, to thrive. For us to thrive, God wants to shape us and mold us. He, he wants to change us. You know, that's really the difference between Christianity and other religions and even the difference between Christianity and what a lot of people think is Christianity. Christianity doesn't say change yourself and then God will take you. Uh, Christianity says... Come to me, and I'll, I'll change you. And, and that's what he wants. He wants to shape us. He wants to mold us. He wants to make us into the person that he created us to be. Now, I want to talk a little bit tonight just about different ways because I'm convinced that God wants to change you and that he wants to change me. 
But it won't necessarily be the same way. He may change you differently than, than he changes me. He may use a different, different method. Uh, what we know is that there is only one person who can deliver that level, that level of life that you would call thriving. There's only one person who can deliver that uh, relationship with Jesus is the only way that you can have the life that is intended for you. So we, we can be clear about that. As a, as a Christian, as believers, that's a starting point for us. We believe that the only way that you can experience life at its highest level is in relationship with him. But it doesn't always have to look exactly the same. And so I want to walk through in the story of one, one person uh, at least four things, four different ways that God changes us. And, and I want to use the story of Jacob and Esau. You know the story, most of you know, are familiar with the story uh, of Jacob and Esau. So they're, they're twins. Uh, Esau's born first, and so he, he comes out first. Jacob comes out, and the Bible says he comes out holding uh, his brother's uh, ankle or his heel. He, he's, he's clutching his brother's foot as he comes out. And so they name him Jacob, which Jacob means, a fancy word for, for Jacob would be usurper, which is just a fancy word for grabber. It means he's, he wants to take things. Jacob actually means grabber or taker. And so that's, that's Jacob, and he's... he's from the beginning, he's grabbing for things. And so time goes on, and they start to grow up. And, and Esau one day comes in, and he's been out uh, doing stuff, and he's tired, and he's hungry, and he sees uh, Jacob cooking. And he's cooking some stew, and he says, you know, I, I need some stew. Let me, let me have some of that stew. Now, see, Jacob's not a giver. He's a grabber. And so a grabber is not going to give you some stew. He's going to sell you some stew. And so Jacob says to Esau, I'll I'll give you some stew. But first you have to give me your birthright. Now, his birthright was a big deal. As the firstborn, it is everything. It's the majority of inheritance. It's like a two-third inheritance from his father. It's his college education. It's his 401K. It is everything. And so he just gives it to him. He says, fine, you know, here, take it. And so Esau gives to Jacob. His birth goes on, and uh, they continue to grow up. And then there comes a time where Jacob, being the grabber, he deceives his father. He dresses up like Esau and fools his father into thinking that, you know, he's Esau goes in, and he not only gets the birthright, he gets the blessing. So his father, you know, thinking that it's Jacob, he prays the blessing of the firstborn over him and blesses him to abundance and all this kind of stuff. And, and so then Jacob comes in, I mean, Esau comes in and he says, you know, what, what's happened here? And the father says, you know, your brother deceived me and I gave him, I gave him your blessing. And, and Esau says, is there anything left? Is there anything left for me? And his father says, Okay, here's your blessing. You're going to serve your brother. You're going to serve your brother. But when you're old, you'll break his yoke from your neck. 
I don't know. As far as blessings go, that's not a great one. But that's what he gets. And so now mom steps in because mom realizes that this is not going well and that uh, uh, Esau's kind of angry. And, and by, In fact, the Bible says Esau hated his brother, and, and he actually wants to kill him. And so mom steps in and says, you, you need to get out of here. And, uh, she, you know, this was his, her favorite. Jacob was her favorite. And so she steps in and says, you know, get out of town, run for your life. Your brother's going to kill you. And so he does. He takes off. And he's headed towards Haran. And Haran is a place where they have family. They, they have relatives that live there. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure his mom probably said, go. That's where the family are. They'll t- treat you well. They'll take care of you. Go to Haran. So he, he takes off. And he's headed to Haran. And on his way towards Haran, something happens. Uh, and this is, this is the first thing I would say is that God changes us through encounter. God changes us through encounter. So uh, Jacob's traveling along, and he stops in a particular place, and he lays down to sleep. And and that night, he has this encounter with God. And if you're familiar with the song Stairway to Heaven, this is where where it comes from. He's ascending and descending. They're going up and down this stairway or this ladder to heaven. And he has this incredibly supernatural encounter and when it's all said and done he says this is like the gate to heaven and the presence of God is here and I didn't even know it I didn't even know it and one of the one of the things that's that's interesting to me and even peculiar to me about that whole story is that phrase I didn't even know it it's like he wasn't expecting it and there are some of us who think that God will only work in our lives when we expect it. Right? You know, we've even we've positioned ourselves to think that way. You know, if you come to worship service with high expectation, something good will happen. But if you come to worship service with no expectation, you've ruined it for everyone. Right? I mean, that's kind of the way we think. But this guy's saying, I had no expectation. I wasn't expecting this. But it happened. I had this incredible encounter. The presence of God is in this place, and I didn't even know it. About three weeks ago, we went off on a golf trip, and uh, we do this. We've been doing it for 18 years. Uh, great guys. It's a, lot, a lot of what we do is, is kind of what this, this group is after. Uh, we have, over 18 years, we've just developed a, a friendship and a camaraderie that uh, we're just real men together, and we encourage each other, but we challenge each other. We push each other to be better. Uh, so we go off on this trip, and, and uh, I mean, I, I go to bed earlier than anybody else, right? They all stay outside, and they play cornhole until 2 o'clock in the morning, and then they go and play golf the next day. And I, you know, I'm just, I can't stay up that late. But this year I was pushing myself. Uh, Brad Willoughby had said, you know, you, you need to engage more. I, so I, I took took Brad's advice, and I decided I'm I'm going to engage. And so Wednesday night, Thursday night, you know, I have two witnesses on the back row. Wednesday night and Thursday night, I stayed up. I was out there. I'm the worst cornhole player in the 18, in the group of 18. But I stayed out there, and I played, and I, and I, I took my medicine. I lost every game. And, but I stayed up till 2 o'clock, two nights in a row, Wednesday night, Thursday night. Friday night rolls around. I'm just exhausted. We've played golf all day. 
and we were going to play golf the next day. And I, I just, I stood up. They're still cornholing, and I, I'm on the porch, and I just looked around, and I, I said, you know, I'm done, and I'm going to bed. It's 11:30. That's still pretty late for me. I get up at 11:30, and I go inside, and I take a quick shower, and then I go to my couch that I sleep on every year. And it's 11.45 by this time. And my, my plan is go to sleep, get a good seven hours, and play golf the next day. And I lay down on the couch, and, and I, I pull a quilt up to my chin, and, and I put my headphones in, and this is my ritual every night. I put my headphones in every night before I go to bed, and I listen to one song. I listen to Corey Asbury, Endless Hallelujah. And then I go to sleep. And so this is my plan for that night. I'm going to listen to Corey Asbury for my wife. And I'm going to go to sleep. And I'm going to get seven hours. And I'm going to have an advantage the next day. Because everybody else is out there playing cornhole. And so I plug my earphones in. I, tur- I hit play. And the song goes. And I start to pray for my wife. And the presence of the Lord just comes. And I didn't expect it. I was surprised. I, I wasn't expecting. I wasn't searching. I wasn't after one of those. You know, I've had nights where I was after one of those. I wasn't. I, I just wanted to do that song, say a quick prayer, and go to sleep. And the Lord just came. And his presence was so strong that for the next five hours, I worshiped and I prayed and I wept and I worshiped and I prayed and I wept and I worshiped and I prayed and I wept. And and I'll tell you, uh, and and a lot of you know me well enough to know, uh, I am a man who has encountered the Lord. On a, on a pretty regular basis. I, I have supernatural encounters with God. I, I am a person who has an extremely high value for the presence of God. Three weeks ago on a Friday night was, without a doubt, the greatest night slash morning of my life. Not even close. Five hours uninterrupted worship and praise and and weeping and God speaking specific things to me that I needed. And I I didn't expect it. I wasn't looking for it. And, And so I say that to say this, that God changes us through encounter. Sometimes when you go looking for it, sometimes when you're not looking for it at all, Sometimes when it's the furthest thing from your mind, God will interrupt your life. And I just believe that there's nothing that changes us quite like encounter. So now Jacob, he gets up, you know, and he he says what he says about that place, and then he moves on towards Haran. And when when he gets to Haran, he sees Rachel, and he wants to marry her. 
And, you know, you can just only imagine what Rachel, you know, what kind of woman she must be, how beautiful she must be. Because, I mean, he basically sees her and where it takes, I want to marry that one. And so he goes to Laban and he says, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll let you marry her, but you have to work for me for seven years. No problem. I'll work for you for seven years if I can have Rachel. And, and, and actually, he says that his love for Rachel was so strong that seven years seemed like a few minutes. I mean, this guy is, he's toast. He is so in love with this woman that he can't think of anything else. And so he, seven years of work, and then they have a wedding. But he doesn't get Rachel. He gets Leah, the older sister. And... He realizes, okay, this this is not what I signed up for. And he says to Laban, you know, I, you promised me Rachel. You gave me Leah. Well, you know, what's up with this? And, you know, I wanted Rachel. And, and the father says, well, you know, you're a grabber. And, and you you know, you're blaming it on me, but really it's it's you. It's on you. That's, this is not the way we do things. You came in here and you just, like you always do, you wanted what you wanted and you didn't give any thought to the way things are done. And the way we do things here is the older daughter is married first, not the younger daughter. But you you didn't even consider that, that I'm supposed to give you, the older one. But I'll give you the other one. I'll give you the other one. Finish out the, the wedding week with Leah and then I'll give you Rachel, but you have to work for me for seven more years. Seven more years. And here's what I'll say about that. So God changes us through encounter. You know how else God changes us? He changes us through process. And sometimes it's not fun. He changes us through process, and he changes us actually through perseverance in the process. And sometimes it's not fun at all. The, the time, that, especially the second seven years, first seven years, he says, went by like a few minutes because his love for Rachel was so great. Second seven years, maybe not so fast. There were some things about it that weren't fun. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And there's not a man in this room who doesn't want the crown. But how many of us are quick to sign up for the test? But he says it right there. Having stood the test. Having persevered. Romans 5.4 says, Endurance produces character and character hope. So there are things that God wants to do through you. There's not a man in this room who God has not placed in a position of influence. There, there is a place, you have influence in some place, some way, somewhere. God has positioned you to have influence. There are things that he wants to do through you. But before he will do through you, there are things that he wants and must do in you. There are things that he must do in you. And so God will develop you in the process to get you to the place where he can give you the influence, not the influence that you necessarily want, but the influence that he wants you to have. 
And so he will work in you. James, Jacob's time in Hiram was not perfect. It was a difficult time, but it was a necessary time. And, and I would say, and this, this, is, this is maybe just my opinion, but, but I believe that one of the things that Jacob learned during his time in Haran was honor. I believe that he learned honor because I believe that during those 14 years of work, he learned to value the way other people did things. Because he saw, you know, his father-in-law says, that's not the way we do it. You know, we, we, the older gets married first and then the younger. And, and I think that this value for honor begins to take shape in Jacob during these 14 years. And we see it later on in the way that he relates to his brother. So, uh, so Jacob and Leah, uh, he, it says that he loved Rachel more than Leah, but he, he must have loved Rachel a little bit because they have a bunch of kids. And uh, they have a bunch of kids, and Rachel's barren, and then finally Rachel has a child, Joseph. And after Joseph is born, Jacob tells Laban, I want to go home. I want to go home. And Laban, he's not real crazy about the idea because I mean, he's getting a lot of good. They want him to go home. But he wants to go home, and he prays, and the Lord confirms it for him to go home. And so they gather up all their folks, and they send a text message to Esau, and they say, coming home. And then they get a text message back, I'm coming towards you, and I'm bringing 400 men. It didn't sound like good news. Okay, so, you know, it wasn't a text message. He sent a messenger, though. He sent a messenger ahead, and the messenger comes back and says, uh, your brother's coming. He's got 400 guys, and they're, they're mean-looking dudes, and they're coming. And so Jacob's afraid. He's afraid for his life, and he prays. And you know what he prays? Now, this, remember, this is the guy that, that was called the grabber. This is the guy that just wanted what he wanted, and he wanted it when he wanted it. And now he says... I'm not, I don't deserve your favor. You, you see the shift that's beginning to take place in Jacob's heart. He, he says to the Lord, he prays this repentant prayer, I don't deserve your favor. And so then that night he has uh, what theologians call a Christophany. He has a Christophany. Now, Christophany is just a fancy uh, seminary word for an encounter with Jesus in the Old Testament. Okay. So Jesus shows up, and uh, some, you know, sometimes scriptures call him the angel of the Lord or the captain of the Lord's army, whatever. But most theologians believe this is to have this wrestling match. This is his second uh, supernatural encounter. Uh, and he has this wrestling match with the Lord, and he doesn't want to give up. And um, finally, the Lord realizes, okay, he's not going to quit. And so he reaches down, and he grabs his hip, and he just does a number on his hip. And so now his hip's out of socket, and, and uh, pretty much the match is over, except for the fact that Jacob won't let go. And so he's just clinging. He can't really do anything else anymore except just hold on. You ever been there? So he's just holding on. And he says to the Lord, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And the Lord says to Jacob, who are you? Who are you? And Jacob says, 
I'm, I'm the grabber. That's my name. And my third point would be that God changes us through encounter. And God changes us through process, through enduring process. Third way that God changes us is through declaration. God changes us through declaration. And, and the Lord looks at Jacob and he says, not anymore. He says, I'm the grabber. And the Lord says, no. Not anymore. From now on, you will be called Israel. And what does Israel mean? Israel means God wins. And so he goes from his name being grabber, I want what I'll get, instead of asking for it. He goes from that being his name to his name being God wins. And there are things that you believe about yourself that are not true. There were things that Jacob believed about himself that had been true, but they weren't true anymore. And he was still calling himself by those things. You might call yourself lonely. But the Lord says, you will never be alone. I will be with you always. You might call yourself rejected. But the Lord says, you're not rejected. I have accepted you. I have welcomed you into my family. You might call yourself the black sheep of your family or of your clan or your group. I have a group of guys. I'm, I'm, I'm in school. <laughs> um, I don't know how you get tricked into getting in school when you're almost 60 years old, but I'm, somehow I got tricked into being in school. And so I'm in school, and, uh, and I'm in a small group with uh, some guys from London. There, there are four guys from London. Three of them live in London currently, and one of them is from London, but he lives in Canada. And we're a small group, and you know it's kind of a virtual group, and we, we meet over uh, Skype and stuff like that. But then when we have to go to class, we have these meetings actually together. And they're, they've been an incredibly encouraging group uh, in my life. But this last time we met, uh, we had a time for each of us where we spoke life into each other. And so each person had a designated time. And when my designated time came, one of the things they said to me was, Tom, um, we've heard you say more than once that you were the black sheep of your family. And you need to quit saying that. Because it may have been true then, but it's not true now. And there are things that you believe about yourself. There are even things that you say about yourself that may have been true at one time, but they're not true anymore. And you need to believe what the Lord says about you. God will change us through declaration. The most powerful declaration that has ever been made is when Jesus was baptized. And the heavens opened, and the voice of the Father came like thunder, and he said, This is my son. I love him. 
And he said that about his son so that from now on, from that point until this, forever and ever, he could say it about all of his sons. This is my son. I love him. He pleases me. Jesus went to the cross, bled and died, and was raised on the third day so the Father could look at you and say, you're my son. I love you. You make me happy. You bring me pleasure. And so when you think things or say things or mumble under your breath, I'm a disappointment to God. I just can't get it right. This declaration over you. He wants to say to you, to every one of you tonight, you're mine. I chose you. It wasn't a mistake. You're my son. I love you. You please me. So, uh, Jacob has the second encounter that ends in this declaration from the Lord of this, this is who you are. You're from now on, you're Israel. And, and then he, he, uh, he gets up. And uh, he heads on to meet his brother. And uh, one of the things that Jacob says about this encounter uh, at the end of it, after he's had this declaration from, from the Lord, he says, I have seen God face to face. I have seen God face to face. And then. That's at the end of chapter 32 in the story in Genesis. And then right at the beginning of chapter 33, it says, Jacob looked up and he saw Esau coming. So, so understand, this, this is the sequence of events. He has this encounter with the Lord. The Lord speaks truth over his life and declares, this is who you are from now on, yada, yada, yada. This is where you're going to go. This is who you're going to be. He reckoned with the Lord. I am seeing God face to face. And then he looks up. And his brother's coming. And he still believes that his brother is coming to kill him. He's afraid for his life. Now, verse 4 in chapter 33 says, Esau runs to meet him. Now, you can interpret that a lot of ways. I mean, just because somebody's running towards you doesn't mean it's good news. And so Esau runs to meet him. But when they get to each other, the Bible says that they fell on each other, and Esau fell on his brother's neck, and he kissed him. He kissed him. And then Jacob says this. He looks at his brother. He's been greeted, you know, with this grace expression that he didn't expect. He thought his brother wanted to kill him, and now they're kissing. And he looks at his brother, and he says, Seeing you is like looking in the face of God. Now, just before, in chapter 32, he says, I have seen God face to face. So he's saying, I know, when he looks at his brother, he's saying, I know what God looks like, and you look like him. So why does he say that? 
He says that because we are never more like Jesus than when we forgive. We're never more like him than when we choose forgiveness. There are those of us in this room who, at times in our life, cannot thrive for no other reason except lack of forgiveness. Either we can't forgive ourselves, or we can't receive God's forgiveness, or we can't, re- we can't offer forgiveness to someone who has offended us. And because we can't forgive or don't forgive or won't forgive, we can't thrive. And that's the the fourth way that God changes us. He changes us when we choose forgiveness. Either to give it or receive it. It will change us. So God changes us through encounter. Sometimes when we go looking for it, sometimes we're not looking for it at all. It completely surprises us. God changes us through process, through endurance, through pushing through hard things, being willing to take the test and not quit. And God changes us through declaration, by saying things, speaking truth over our lives and giving us the grace to believe it, to truly be the men that God has destined us to be. We have to say yes to forgiveness. We have to say yes to giving it and receiving it. When it's deserved and when it's not. When it's asked for and when it's not. God wants to change us. He does. Uh, He doesn't demand that we change ourselves before we come to him. He says, come to me. Let me change you. Let me shape you. Let me mold you. Let me make you into the person, into the man that I've called you and destined you to be. The posture of your life can make that last longer or make it shorter. And I would suggest that we would all be wise as I'm willing. I'm willing for you to change me. I want to work with you, not against you. Now let me pray. Uh, Lord, I I pray that you would continue to shape us and mold us and change us. Uh, We all need it. Uh, We believe that there are things that you want to do through us that you can only do after you've done stuff in us. And so I, I pray that we would have open hearts, that our lives would be an open book to you, that we would not resist or hinder your work, but we would, in fact, welcome your work in us so that we can be the men that you have called us and destined us to be. In Jesus' name.